Hello, and welcome to the Dr. Avant-Garde podcast. My name is Shannon Wettstein, and I'm your host. I'm a pianist, and I specialize in music that is adventurous and challenging and avant-garde in the art music world. And this podcast features conversations with other people moving the art of music forward in the 21st century. Today's guest is composer Jeffrey Mumford. Born in Washington, D.C., Jeffrey now makes his home in Ohio. Jeffrey Mumford's awards include the Academy Award in Music from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, a fellowship from the Guggenheim Foundation, and scholarships and awards from ASCAP. Jeffrey Mumford has been commissioned by the L.A. Philharmonic, the Library of Congress, the BBC Philharmonic, the National Symphony on two different occasions, and so many other orchestras, chamber ensembles, and soloists have commissioned works from Jeffrey Mumford. Current projects include For Claire. It's a new work for solo piano commissioned by pianist Claire Longendike as part of her project called Unraveled, which is a project uh, responding and uh, reimagining Ravel's piano music. He also has a double concerto for violin and cello in, in his upcoming projects and a new recording of his two Elliot Carter tributes by pianist Pina Napolitano as part of her critically acclaimed CD, Tempo e Tempi, is out now on Odredeck Records. Jeffrey Munford has taught at Washington Conservatory of Music, has been an artist-in-residence at Bowling Green State, has been an assistant professor and composer in residence at Oberlin College Conservatory of Music, and is currently a distinguished professor at Lorain County Community College in Northern Ohio. You can find Jeffrey's music published by Theodore Presser Company and Quick Light Music. And here is Jeffrey Mumford. Hi, Jeffrey. How are you? I am fine. How are you? Very well, thank you. Thanks for having me. You are welcome. Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I realize that uh, those of us who are doing more adventurous things in um, classical music are uh, are more isolated than ever. And we're in our little pockets doing our own thing. And uh, the conversation between uh, people on the coasts of the United States and the people in the middle of the United States, there's not much of a conversation. And so my idea is to get our, not only our national conversation, but our, our global conversation going on yeah. uh, uh, all the things progressive in, in the I, world of classical music. Things that I think would be going on a different trajectory if it worked for this virus, of course. Yes, I think this has kind of uh, put a halt to our, our normal way of proceeding and also um, kind of redirected at us, like starting this podcast. Right, right. Yeah, so uh, one of my questions that uh, I'm asking all of my guests is, um, what are some of the things that are 
exciting you about music right now? Because rather than being depressed or, or, or feeling that our, all of our ways of making art have been taken from us, I, I try to look on the bright side. What are some, some things that are exciting you or what seem like some opportunities right now? Well, um, working with you is a terrific opportunity. Um, I also have a number of large projects that I'm working on for the future, including what I call my bucket list piece, which is a double concerto for violin, cello, and orchestra. Got a couple of bites. I won't say which orchestras yet until I sign a contract, but sure. it feels good. There's also a Canadian violist named Mariana Thibault, who's fantastic. She went to Curtis and is now in charge of the Canadian Viola Society. And she's commissioned me to write a viola concerto for her. And there's been interest in the Saskatoon Symphony Orchestra on that project. Very exciting about that. And she's also assigning my viola pieces to all of her students. That's fantastic. And I noticed I had such a treat in preparing for our conversation and going to your website, which will be in the show notes, and um, curating a concert of your music by listening to all the different links. And you have written so many wonderful pieces for strings. It made me wonder if your background had some um, like string instrument playing in it. Actually, my first instrument was clarinet. But where, where strings came in, well, there's many, many portals to this story. I grew up in Washington, D.C. My father had a huge jazz collection, major Count Basie collection, tons of jazz ballads. And I remember many of those jazz ballads had huge string sections. And I love the lushness of the sound of these ballads. Gloria Lynn, Diana Washington, all these wonderful singers with these huge string orchestras behind them. That may be where I my develop my love for string writing. I don't know. I just, that, that, that is an early memory. Mm. You talk about my origin story. I'm yeah. Very- yeah. We'll, and- we'll delve more into that. And that's so interesting that you use the word lush about your first experiences of falling in love with string music, because hearing your string music, such as the string trio and the link to that will be in the show notes. The, the word that came to mind was lush. And then mm. I thought, well, is that appropriate for complex um, and sometimes um, even densely textured contemporary classical music? And yes, it was very lush. And uh, one of my first experiences of your music was hearing uh, the pianist Sarah Cahill play some of your music. And Right. So think about how I heard about you first. And I remember it was, yeah, UCSD and, right. Right. We both have that um, in our background. Indeed. The other thing is, when I went to undergraduate school, I actually started out as an art major, as a painter. And then music took over my sophomore year, and I was taken under the wing of a composition professor, composer named Peter Odegaard, who was a violist. And he said, I remember this, always, I tell everyone this story, he says, a composer should have a working knowledge of a string instrument. So he taught me viola lessons. And he said, if you play the viola, you learn three instruments for the price of one. It's tuned the same way a cello is, and it's fingered like a violin. 
So he gave me functional viola lessons, and I owe him a great deal for that. I mean, I love writing for strings, and I know that has a lot to do with it. Um, That's brilliant. And also knowing that you've got this background as a painter and that you were married to a visual artist, you know, that also makes sense um, in listening to your music because it's so strongly atmospheric and, and really does um, – create an, an image in sound when I listen to your music. Well, thank you. That's brilliant. So yeah, let's delve into your origin story. Um, it's always interesting to find out how people got to where they are now. And there are so many different avenues in being a creative person, being a painter, being a composer. And how, how did all of those things lead you to where you are now? Well, this could take a long time. <laughs> I mean, as I said, I grew up in this house where the basement was the music room and where the work, where the record player was and where we heard all kinds of things. And my father um, took great pride in his collection of very, very, very amazing diversity of, of, of jazz. And, but Count Basie was always number one. Count Basie was always number one. And Ray Charles, I think, was number two. We heard tons of Ray Charles growing up, tons of Count Basie, and then the jazz ballads, and um, Ramsey Lewis, and Billy Taylor. and um, Then he also introduced me to musical theater. Um, we had a original cast recording of Kismet, with Alfred Drake, and I remember that on 78s. Remember 78? <laughs> Barely remember that. I do remember I remember eight track tapes. Well, yeah, I'm a dinosaur. <laughs> and then he also introduced me to um the first time I'd ever heard the Emperor Concerto, Clifford Curzon, English pianist from yeah. days, ages ago. And then the Messiah. But this was not any Messiah, this was the Messiah at the time, the Mormon Tabernacle Choir and the Philadelphia Orchestra. So this is, we're talking casts of thousands. Talk about lush. I mean, this is like over lush. I mean, then when I heard how the Messiah was really supposed to sound, it's so different. But my growing up memory of the Messiah was this, like, this huge, massive um, sound um, filling up several rooms that I was imagining in my head. How many of these people? And I saw eventually what the, the Tabernacle Choir look like. It's this huge space. And you <laughs> sure. fill up the orchestra, which is known for its string section as well. So there you go again. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, so that was my introduction to the Messiah. So I think music has always been in my head from, I think, of, in a previous lifetime. I think in you know, certain pieces I discovered, I felt I'd heard in some previous lifetime, like the songs of the Auvergne. Do you know those? Those are French folk songs orchestrated by a composer named Joseph Cantaloupe. And yes, they've yeah, been yeah, yeah. numbers of amazing singers, Kiri Takanawa, Victoria de Los Angeles, um, Anamafo. I love those pieces. Um, and he studied with Vincent Dandy. So you have all this gorgeous French orchestration um, going on. And so that's a piece. That those are pieces I think you know, have a very strong influence um, as well. Um, when I discovered the Columbia Music Black Composers series in the 70s, 
I saw for the first time that these are composers who are writing music, this kind of music, who look like me. I was always the only one in the room who did what I did. And then I, when I found out there were other people doing this kind of music, uh, tonal, atonal, and everything in between, I didn't feel so alone. That's really fantastic. No, so were you drawn to any particular composers? Well, it's a good question because at the time I was also, as I said, painting and I also wanted to be a drag racer when I was a kid. <laughs> I, also wanted a lot, I wanted to be a lot of things. Music was always there. Mm -hmm. I always had my little transistor radio under my pillow as a little kid listening to the R&B soul station and hearing little Stevie Wonder as he was known then and, uh. um, and Four Tops and, and Supremes and the, all these people. And then when disco came and hearing also again, Lush, we were talking Lush again. Yeah. No, right. And these are, these are human beings. These weren't synthesizers. I'm thinking, I remember these are people are being paid. I love it. These people are being paid. Um, and I know a lot of people who are played in these studio orchestras. Um, and it was, a Another another thing that affected me uh, a great deal. I don't know musicologists from in the future how they're going to make sense of all of this. You know, Earth, Wind, and Fire, Elliot Carter, Jeffrey Mumford, Little Stevie Wonder, Chaka Khan. I leave it up to them to make to make sense of it all. Um, but it's but, all in there as part of you, and and you yeah. had so many different avenues of you know, being a, a music listener and a music lover and as, as that saying goes if you see it you can be it and mm -hmm. uh, so it was it was really great that you had ways of, of hearing the music of black artists mm -hmm. and that all and found its way into forming your artistic identity yeah I, I used to work in the listening lab at um, undergraduate school University of California Irvine it was my, my work study job and because of that, I used to, I had the keys. So after hours, when I wasn't doing what I was supposed to do, punching in what other assignments people were listening to on reel-to-reel -reel tapes, <laughs> again, dinosauring me, um, I would sneak in and just listen to the whole CRI catalog, listen to the whole catalog of Desto and all the, the records that recorded new music. And I fell in love. The first piece I remember that I discovered at Carter's was this piano sonata. And it's a piece I, unlike which I'd never heard before. No piano music that I'd ever heard sounded like what he did. And then I discovered his cello sonata that I loved so much. And his first string quartet was an amazing piece. Lush again. Very textured, very, just, just, this piece unfolds in waves of, of amazing sound. And um, so I just, sat there and listened and listened and listened. And so so much of this music, you can listen to it over and over and over again and find new things in it. Exactly. Over and over again. Yeah, exactly. And I think the same can be said of your music. I can come back to it and listen to it and, and get something else, something new, something fresh from it each time. Well, I remember one very kind music critic the Washington Post who's no longer with us named Joseph McClellan in reviewing um, a piece of mine says that Mr. Mumford's music doesn't reveal everything all at once 
and it requires repeated listening. But it's worth it, he said. I, I was very, very kind of him. It's not only kind, it's true. Yeah. yeah it's, not have... easy, it's not easy listening. I'll, def, I'll say that. No, it's not. Right. So, so that kind of leads me to uh, another question that I'm asking all of my guests is uh, so when you, in, when you meet somebody new and they ask you, so what do you do? How do you answer that question? Well, I say I'm a composer. Um, I say I, I use the word, the term contemporary classical, for lack of a better term. So that's the thing. What are the terms we use? And um, I know I commonly get asked, so is there any music of yours that I would have heard? Or, or more commonly, do you play any songs that I would know? Right. Yeah, <laughs> Something oh. along those lines. So, um, so how do you address... Um, and the question of you know, we're kind of a, a niche within a niche within a niche. Well, I'll tell you another encounter that was very influential for me. There's a group out of New York uh, known as Continuum. It was directed by Joel Sachs and Cheryl Seltzer. I'm familiar with them. Uh-huh. And they came to undergraduate school uh, and presented a concert in which they played En Blanc Noir by Debussy, Stravinsky Concerto with two solo pianos, a piece by Henri Pousser, and um, another piece that I can't remember. But I remember upon hearing that music, I was thinking, so this kind of music is possible to make? And after the concert, I went and ran to the practice room and just started banging away at the piano, just like trying to remember what I heard and trying to improvise and, 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 and get the sounds in my ears that made such a big impression on me. This was in 1974, um, so I owe Joel Sachs a, a debt for that. And in the, in the interim, we've been in touch, and I curated a, a series of lectures with the University of Maryland, and he was the host of this panel discussion on new music. So every time we had concert involving contemporary music, we would convene a panel of, of, of either players in the ensemble or people who were experts, quote unquote, or you know, in in the biz. Eric Salzman was one of our our, our panelists, and we had Fred Sherry. And we had a number of people um, on the panel, and Elliot Carter had a piece on once, and he came. It was nice. Charles Wording came down. He was he was actually not feeling well. He had a, had a, I think an ankle injury. The uh, was a group. The Arden Trio was doing a piano trio of his, and he came down on the train anyway, and I was very, very appreciative of that. And so we had some really good discussions. That sounds really brilliant to have all of those you know, great musical minds in the same place at the same time. Legends. Um, do you know if any of those uh, panel discussions or performances have been recorded and preserved? That's a very good question. I don't know that. Um, concert series doesn't exist anymore, and the the University of Maryland has expanded itself. They built several new performing arts spaces. I don't know um, where a lot of those materials are. That's a good question. I should investigate. I'm just thinking that would be a great thing to to link to in our show notes because I'm sure a lot of people would be um, interested 
and hearing those conversations. But that you you inspired me to, to, to do some investigation. All right, so more information to come on that. Yeah, yeah so uh, so we've discussed some things that are uh, keeping you creative today and, um, and how you got to this point. Um, and this is such an interesting point in kind of the, our history as not just artists, but as um, global citizens. If, if people are listening to this conversation at some point in the future, we're in the seventh month of a pandemic. Right. Nothing known within my lifetime. Um, and times of um, just um, really intense uh, racial struggles in our country, um, times of uh, intense climate crisis in our country. So, uh, like I was saying earlier, rather than being super pessimistic about all the things going wrong right now, in the midst of all of these you know, societal and cultural challenges right now, First of all, what are some things that you find challenging and what are some ways that you're um, working through your art to um, manage these challenges? Well, you're catching me on a good day because I have, I have gone through these periods of depression and what I call inertia. Mm-hmm. I think we've had a conversation about that earlier. Mm-hmm. Inertia someone, is such a great word for it, yeah. I, I, I'm someone who works very well with deadlines. And because of this pandemic and so many postponed performances and postponed projects, sometimes it's very hard to get motivated. When someone says, I want this piece by this date, by this, and blah, 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 there I am. That, 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 that gives me the kick I need. But not to say that I haven't written pieces without deadlines because the piece just has to be written. But I'm, I'm someone for whom deadlines help a great deal. So when things are such in period of ambiguity, it's very difficult. So I have not been as productive as I have been. And I'm I'm, giving, I'm trying not to feel guilty about that. I give myself permission. I've talked to other artists who are going through the same thing and they're all saying the same thing, you know, don't 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 feel guilty. Don't kick yourself for it. This is it's happening all over the place. I, I am encouraged hearing you say this because likewise, I, I keep telling people I'm in a holding pattern. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Things keep kind of get put off and postponed and rescheduled. And right now there's like two years worth of concert activity all jam-packed into the summer of 2021. And that will probably again change. Mm-hmm. So it is very hard to, to plan for the future when, um, Deadlines and uh, and timelines are, are so up in the air right now. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I just I plan. I'm a planner. I've always been a planner. So um, this this double concerto is, is a very exciting piece for me right now. Once we get the orchestras on board, um, I'm off to the races. You know. But I'm developing ideas, um, even as we speak, for that piece. And um, another piece with a group from Boston called Radius. You know, mm-hmm. has yep. fabulous violinist named Gabriel Gabriela Diaz. 
this summer I wrote a solo piece for Miranda Cookson, who I've, with whom I've worked a great deal, and she's terrific. And uh, I wrote a good shout over her earlier, and that was inspired. That was you know when you when you work with really good people, like working with you, that's inspiring. Um, so we have to go through a lot of different changes. With, you know, it's, 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 so today you're catching us like you're catching an update. So there are some days I don't want to get out of bed. It's like what am I? What every day is the same day. And just, just, you know. Yes, this is what the two hundred and fortieth day of March or something like that. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right. I like that. I gotta remember that one. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it. it Motivation is just uh, kind of hit or miss for a lot of us these days. So uh, I know you're excited about these compositional projects. Are there, and the musicians you're writing them for, are there other musicians or other um, books or artwork or, or uh, philosophical concepts that are exciting or inspiring to you these days? Well, right now, I'm, I guess I'm immersed in Max Ernst. I'm reading a lot about him, and now I'm uh, writing a book, reading a book by his son, Jimmy Ernst, and it's, it's eerily appropriate for these times discussing the onset of Nazism and what how he described one way of life becoming extinct and another way of life being imposed on people. And some of them saw it coming and some of them didn't. Some of them were deciding to put their heads in the sand. And sounds eerily familiar to current times, doesn't it? And there, so we have there are lessons to be learned. Very, yeah. very strong lessons to be learned. Um, we have to be perpetually vigilant lest these things happen to us. And um, so I've, I've always found his work intriguing. I mean, my wife's a painter and she has tons of books on him and surrealism. And I've always been intrigued by surrealism anyway. Um, so this is a very, the, the book I just finished before that was about eight women who were very um, influential in, in Max Ernst's life. Um, and then this book is by his son and takes it from a different angle. Um, and it's, you, you realize what it's like to go through such an intense period of time in history. It's a, it's a page turner. You know, it's, it's yeah. great. I mean, I, so that's why I, I love reading biographies, actually. If you asked me um, before that, what was the most read of Dora Maar, with whom Picasso was involved, Giacometti biography. Um, I guess I like to know the context in which people did their art. And I like to read their stories about who they are and how they did them. I've been reading a lot of memoirs myself these days. Not so much biographies written by other people, but, but memoirs. That's yeah. been mm -hmm. really an interesting genre for me. Yeah. But yeah, context for, for the art. And that's kind of uh, coming full circle. That's the reason for these conversations is to put uh, this art form that we love so much that um, often gets kind of... Um, put in the tiniest of little corners to um, shed some light on it in, in the larger conversations right. around why it is important that it exists. Exactly. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, um, are there any, um, anything, is there anything that I forgot to ask you that you want to share with our listeners? <laughs> I don't know. If I think about it, I got to get back to you. I don't know. <laughs> this has been a nice conversation. I mean, I, um, I'm happy to have the opportunity to share what I've shared with you. Um, and, and appreciate, as I said, you're reaching out to me. I look forward to working with you. Yes. I like to think of this as our first installment of our public conversations, because as we work more on developing a piece together, as this podcast develops, We'll have future public conversations on the topic of avant-garde classical music and all the things exactly. that are inspiring us. Exactly. I remember one of the things that impressed me so much about your playing is that you just took on a piece by composer such as Brian Fernihu and made <laughs> and made it sound like Mozart. I mean, it's like you know, it's like the thorniest, most complex music, and you. Just played it like butter. I loved that. I loved how oh, you played that. You know, that's so I had, sweet. Had a chance to work with the quartet, the Mivos Quartet, who plays his second string quartet. It's ten minutes long, and then again, you know, anyone who knows Fernie who's music knows that this. It's, you you dive into a world there, and and um, and then again, they had this sense of what the music was about, so that when they played it. Again, it sounded like they played it all their life, and it was part of their DNA, you know. Well, I find, speaking of, of Brian's music, which I, I also love dearly, uh, I find so many of the, the, the phrases and the gestures are, are, are very lush, and, um, and there's just so many of them layered in, in ways that uh, precede it uh, different rates of speed and have um, different um, differing emotional import all at the same time. It's the, the simultaneity that, uh, that makes his music so complex, but uh, I do love it very much. It, it reminds me of what um, a reviewer one time in uh, 21st century music said that um, it, it was actually about a, a duo performance with my duo partner, Elizabeth McNutt. The, the reviewer said that we made the complex clear and kindly. Kindly. I like that. <laughs> I like that. No, and that's, a, and that's, and that's the, the aspect of Carter. I find Carter's music oh. very romantic and very lush. I mean, despite the thorny, quote-unquote, thorny exterior, he studied with Nadia Boulanger, who always stressed the long line. And you know, in his music, you always hear the long line, the elegant line, through all, all of his work. And um, I can't say enough about how it, it just immediately spoke to me. Agree. Yeah. And um, I just, uh, that's something that is always fascinating to me how um, things that have become considered common practice music, um, like, music of Beethoven, music of Mozart, uh, shares in the Venn diagram of music, there are a lot of commonalities between that and, say, Bernie Ho's music, your music. There are some commonalities with the music of Little Stevie Wonder, Chaka Khan, and your music, and Bernie Ho's music, to find that kind of Venn diagram and connect the dots between all these different styles of music. 
that is endlessly fascinating to me. And, and you, I remember in the email you said, um, what, what composers am I listening to now um, and who I find fascinating? And it, yeah. uh, last year or two years ago now, we, we lost two giants, um, George Walker and Ollie Wilson. Um, I had the honor of having known both of them and, and, and missed them very, very much. Um, Ollie Wilson has one of the most beautiful piano trios that exist. I think if you don't know it already, you should definitely run, don't walk to hear it. It's incredible. Beautiful piece. George Walker's um, Lilacs, the first movement. Gorgeous. So gorgeous. Still such a gorgeous piece. Um, also very interested in the work of Unsuk Chin. I love her music. She has a toccata for piano, solo piano. Um, that's an amazing just her sound rule, her ears. She has such amazing ears for orchestration. Her violin concerto played by Vivian Hager, incredible violin concerto. And her cello concerto, her piano concerto, all of her music just celebrates sound, celebrates sonority. Um, I can see how that would really speak to you. Yeah. And that excites me and makes me want to go listen to it. Oh, I as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I recently played the artist. Um, Mazurkas that were written for um, the 200th anniversary of uh, of Chopin's. Uh, mm. Chopin's were, uh, I'm blanking on dates. I can't do math right now. But anyway, it was a big <laughs> Chopin anniversary. And so, uh, so uh, Adas wrote uh, three Mazurkas, and I played those good. recently. Neat. Yeah, so I love his music as well. It sounds like... Uh, we're attracted to a lot of the same music for the same reasons, which uh, is, is very encouraging for you know, cultivating uh, an upcoming piece down the road. Yeah. I'm very excited about it. Me too. Me too. Well, I will put links to um, not only Jeffrey's music, but some of the pieces that we made reference to in our conversation. Those will be in the show notes. And, uh, Listeners can look forward to future conversations with us. Or to it. Thank you. Okay, great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Dr. Avant-Garde podcast. My name is Shannon Wettstein. You can find out more at www.shannonwettstein.com. That's S-H-A-N-N-O-N-W-E-T-T-S-T-E-I-N.com. Check back soon for more new episodes. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us great feedback and a great review so other people can find the podcast. See you back here soon.